Well, hey, today uh, we are close to the tail end of a series in the book of Luke. We've been in the book of Luke for like a year and a half, right? We've taken some good breaks in there. Um, but it's been a long series. It's, it's uh, a long gospel. And uh, so we're going to wrap this series up next week. And so we've got some serious ground to cover today in order to be able to do that. And I'm just going to dive right into some kind of technical stuff today. And so just telling you, don't tune out. If you haven't had quite enough coffee, you know, um, just, just zone in here. Don't tune out because uh, you're going to see in a minute why this is so important. You know, one of the primary reasons people give uh, for not believing in Jesus or not following Jesus is an intellectual argument that the scriptures can't be trusted. What we have in, you know, like the book of Luke, can't be trusted. And just in a nutshell, the argument goes something like this, that Jesus was a good teacher. You know, we all agree Jesus was an actual person who existed. Scholars pretty much unanimously agree that he died on a Roman cross, okay? So he was a good teacher. Jesus was a great guy. But really, you know, the accounts of the miracles, the resurrection, all all the stories in the Gospels, those are just legends that developed decades and decades later, and some even, you know, uh, as much as a hundred years later, they would say. And so because of that, you know, the details got lost in translation, and you really can't trust what's in there. And because you can't trust what's in the Gospels, if you can't trust what's in the Gospels, then I don't really need to believe in or follow Jesus I can kind of, when it comes to my, my morality, you know, how I live my life, I can kind of make it up. Kind of whatever I feel like is the right thing to do or whatever culture says is the right way to live, I can kind of make it up, right? I don't need to live sacrificially for God because really if none of this is, if this is all just myth and legend that somebody compiled later, um, Jesus really has no claim on my life. And so as we get going in the next couple minutes, I want to talk about some of these ideas for just a bit. Uh, The first one is that Jesus' resurrection was a legend that emerged decades and decades and decades later and sort of became folklore and then, you know, was eventually written in the Gospels. And if you uh, have been here with us for a while, we did at Christmas this last year, we did Easter at Christmas. I know it was kind of strange, but because really this, the central event that launched our faith, the Christian faith, wasn't the birth of Messiah, as important as that was. It was the fact that he predicted his own death and resurrection, and then he pulled it off. And eyewitnesses of this poured out into the streets, and they were willing to give their life as martyrs because they would not let go of or shut up about the idea that they saw their Savior, who they saw crucified and buried, they saw him risen. They had breakfast with him on the beach. There's an amazing scripture in 1 Corinthians, and we talked about it at Christmas this year. And the thing about this that's so cool is this whole thing that, you know, the resurrection was a myth that developed over decades and decades and decades. It's simply not true. Scholars almost unanimously agree, all reputable scholars agree, that the Apostle Paul was an actual person that actually lived and actually wrote his letters, which we have recorded in the New Testament, in about the A.D. 50s. 
And one of the undisputed letters of Paul is 1 Corinthians. And in there, you have this, this reference. He's talking all about the resurrection and the importance of the resurrection to our faith and how really our faith hinges on the resurrection. And in there, he quotes what is like a rhyme or a creed or an early hymn. We would, you know, like our worship songs that's talking about Jesus Christ risen. You know, he died for sins. He was risen again. And so we know that he wrote this right about A.D. 53. I mean, this isn't disputed. And what that means is that's 20 years from the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Only 20 years. And we've made this point before, so I won't belabor it, but you vividly remember, if you're here and you're over 30, you vividly remember details from 20 years ago, don't you? In just a couple of years, can you imagine in just a couple of years we're, we're going to be on the 20-year anniversary of 9-11? And do you think in a couple of years you will have any trouble remembering exactly where you were and all the details around where you were when you first found out about 9-11? No, of course not. Not if you're over 30, right? And so it's, it's just inconceivable to think these eyewitnesses that saw Jesus crucified and raised from the dead somehow would not, would not remember that 20 years later. There was not enough time that went by so that these things could develop into myths and legends and folklore. This was the time when plenty of eyewitnesses in the city of Jerusalem could have stood up and go, uh-uh, time out, didn't happen. And yet these guys that claimed that they were eyewitnesses, they went on to go and give their lives for Jesus. And liars do not make very good martyrs. They just simply don't. And so that's one of the kind of things that, that we hear from people that have a, an issue believing some of the things about the Christian faith. The other one is that the Gospels were written much later just to build the case and support you know, this whole folklore and legend that had come up. Now, to understand this a little bit, what you got to understand is everyone has a framework for which they see the world in. You have a framework. It came from your, your upbringing, from your parents, from your education, all of that sort of lumped in together. And scholars, too, have a framework through which they see the world in. And so scholars that do not believe in a supernatural God that sees all things that exist outside of time do not believe in predictive prophecy. And so they look at books like the Gospels and go, well, this must have been written much later because there's things in here that were accurately predicted much earlier and they happened exactly. And so they must have written this a lot later. And they would say that about Luke. They would say that about some of the Gospels. And what, what, what I want to tell you is if you're in that boat where you've heard this or, you know, you've struggled with this, um, there is a much, much stronger case for the Gospels being written early than from people who are writing from this framework and have concluded already that supernatural events like this, predictive prophecy, can't happen, and so this must have been written later. Let me take Luke, for example, that we're going through. In this series, you see Luke and Acts, many people call them Luke Acts because really it's two volumes of the same story. We know that Acts is part two of Luke because Luke tells us this. First thing Luke tells us in the gospel, week one, when we started, is he says uh, he's writing to this guy named Theophilus, which I think is a really cool name. Some of you should name your kids that. And uh, 
So he's writing, and he tells this guy, most excellent Theophilus, and I always think of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure because I'm nerdy like that. Um, but he says, most excellent Theophilus, I'm, ri- I'm writing you these things because I want you to be assured. He said, I carefully investigated all of this in order to write an orderly account so that you can have assurance of all the things that you've heard about Jesus. And so Luke, who is a, a physician, he's a very educated man. You can tell from the way he writes. He went and he, wit- he interviewed eyewitnesses. He would have interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus. He would have interviewed disciples that spent time directly with Jesus. And then he went on to travel with Paul, the apostle Paul, throughout the book of Acts. You can see it. He's writing in first person about his journeys with Paul for a good share of the book of Acts. And where he leaves us at the end of Acts is with Paul preaching in Rome in house arrest and preaching about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade people to believe in Jesus in the closing phrases. And he stayed there in the home, freely preaching for two years. End of story. Luke concludes his two-volume story right there. Well, we know, scholars agree, we know that Paul and Peter were were preaching together. The only time they were in Rome together was in the 60s A.D., They were martyred, both Paul and Peter. Scholars and historians agree. They were both martyred in Rome under the persecution of Nero, just a couple years after Luke wrote his gospel. And so this idea that somehow the gospels were written much later, you know, even up into the the second century instead of the first century, it just doesn't hold water. It doesn't make sense because Luke who writes about the the first martyr, Stephen, and then writes about all of the other martyrs. So somehow he would end his gospel and leave out the fact that, oh, the two, two of the most important, arguably the most important characters in the spread of the faith, Paul and Peter, oh, they were martyred too. And the Christians were persecuted horribly under Nero. It was a horrible, it just doesn't make any sense. There is a compelling case for the early writing of Luke, Acts, as well as the other Gospels. Now, why should you care about this? Why does this make any difference for you? Here's why, because you're going to see this in a minute as we go through this. Because if Jesus can accurately predict the unthinkable and it happen in the future, his death, his resurrection, and some of the texts we're going to see today, Maybe he has a claim on your life. Maybe you should pay attention to what he says. Maybe you should take following him more seriously. Maybe you should consider giving your life to him. And say you've done all that. This is why this is important, because a lot of your kids are getting ready to go off to college. And they're going to hear arguments like this presented as fact. And if you haven't at least given them some groundwork in their life so they know, they don't have to know the answers, they just have to know that there are good answers. There's much, the facts fit our story much better. And see, if they don't have that information, so many of them will conclude that this whole thing is just made up. It's just my parents' faith just my parents thing 
and they'll walk away. That's why this is important. That's why it's important to nerd out occasionally, okay? Can you guys nerd out with me a little bit? All right. Let's get going in the scripture because we have a ways to go here. And I'm going to give you a heads up. I'm going to keep you just a few minutes longer than I normally do because there's a lot of scripture and some interesting stuff to get through, but not too long. Don't worry. So Luke 20, verse 41. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. And remember last week, the religious leaders had been trying to checkmate Jesus or trap him with his words and it did not go their way. And now Jesus turns the tables on them and it says this. Then Jesus said to them, why is it said that Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And see, once again in Luke, Jesus is laying the groundwork for his claims of being the Messiah and for the fact that Messiah is so much more than just a geopolitical leader who's going to come in and, and, and rescue you. No, Messiah is God with us, Emmanuel, God with us, like we celebrate at Christmas. And when you combine this with the other explicit times that Jesus claims to be God, it's impossible to be intellectually honest and hold the view that Jesus is just a good moral teacher. I love that C.S. Lewis, I think, puts it best. He says, C.S. Lewis says, you you just can't hold that view. It's ridiculous. Jesus is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is who he said he is. He is Lord of all. And you really have to wrestle with that. Verse 45. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses for a show and make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. You want to know what really ticks God off? It's a show of religion that is void of compassion and mercy and justice. And that's what was going on all day long in this whole giant temple system. What really ticks God off is religion that allows you to think you're okay with God because you've gone through a ritual, you've made a sacrifice, you've given, while you simultaneously treat other people in a lousy way. God hates that. Verse 1 of 21, as Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is really an interesting scripture. And it's really interesting for a number of reasons, but one of them is where it sits. Because we just had this beware of the, of the religious leaders who play games with God and the religious leaders who have a show of religion but lack compassion, lack mercy, devour widows' houses. And then right after this, what's about ready to, to happen is Jesus is going to say this whole religious system, I'm about ready to tear it down. And stuck in the middle, there's this seemingly weird, random little story about this lady. What's going on here? And it's interesting. You read commentaries, you listen, and people go all sorts of different directions. Now, here, here's something to note. This passage is descriptive, not prescriptive. 
In other words, in this passage, you do not see Jesus go, this is what you are to go do. Sell or give away everything you have left to live on. Jesus is making an observation. I think Jesus is actually doing something much more strong here. See, there's some, you can gather all sorts of really cool application principles from this. You know, like, it's not the amount that counts, it's the proportion. Or, you know, the, the fact that we are to give all of ourselves sacrificially, right? You are to give yourself to the kingdom of God. Another thing I've always thought of when I've read this scripture, and I think it's kind of cool, is, is that what Jesus said actually, literally, was true. Check this out. He says, she's given more. And you're like, not really. She put in like two pennies. You know, these guys over here, they're dropping serious coin, you know. But think about this. This is so cool. Jesus makes this little observation about her and says, she's given more. And because Jesus observed it, and eyewitnesses, those who heard Jesus' words, wrote it down, inspired by God. And we have it 2,000 years later. Think of all the countless people who were inspired by this little widow who didn't know anybody was watching her. But Jesus saw it. And Jesus shared it. Think of the billions upon billions upon billions that have been given because of this lady. And so literally what Jesus says, she's given more. Yeah, she has. I think that's kind of cool, isn't it? And so, you know, I think that's a good application principle. So many times we feel like our sacrifice goes unseen, but it doesn't. It doesn't. And so maybe that's the direction to go with the scripture, but I think there's another possibility too. I think you can gather all those things and those are all great lessons to learn. But I think as you look at the context, what just came before this and what's about to come after this, religious hypocrisy, I'm gonna tear down this whole religious system. I think maybe Jesus is really illustrating what he just said. But hey, check out all these religious leaders. Just give them a fraction. It doesn't cost them really anything. There's no genuine faith going on over here. In fact, other times we know that whole religious system had been just set up to make a certain class of people just incredibly wealthy. Meanwhile, you get this little old lady who feels compelled to give everything she has to live on as her religious duty. And next thing Jesus is going to say is the whole system, I'm going to tear it down. Luke 21.5. So they're in the temple. And it says some of his disciples are inside or maybe right outside looking up. They're looking up at this remarkable, remarkable building. So some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be torn down. Now, if you've grown up in church, you've read this before, you've heard this, and it's lost all impact for you. You're like, oh yeah, this is, I know this passage, yeah. And then he's going to go into all that end time stuff. Cool. Are we going to talk about end times tonight? Because Christians love to geek out on that, right? Oh, cool. Tribulation, Antichrist. I wonder who the Antichrist is. You're already spinning off on all that stuff if you grew up in church. So time out. Stop. Come back here. Because I want to talk about this for a second. Because this is amazing. This temple. Um, I just wanted to illustrate this for you. Could we kill the lights for a second? And then, because... You have no concept of how big this thing is. 
And so I wanted to play this little clip that's an illustrated, like a virtual 3D flyover. Check this out. It's massive. Massive, like 1,600 feet long. Somebody do the math of how many football fields that is. Huge, 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 huge structure. This would have been Herod's temple. This is called the second temple. Solomon's temple, the first temple. You can turn the lights back on, thank you. The first temple was planned by David, built by Solomon. Spectacular, wonder of the world. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And then destroyed by Babylon. Rebuilt much more humbly, as we saw in the book of Ezra. And it, was, it was rebuilt. They began and they re- rebuilt and finished the temple. And then by the time Herod came along, Herod the Great, who was sort of this half-Jewish uh, king, he was called the Great, not because he was a great person. In fact, he killed so many people. Um, it was said in Jerusalem, it was much better to be one of Herod's swine, because he kept some of the dietary loss rather than one of his brothers, because he killed that many of his family members, or rather one of his sons, I think it was. He killed almost all of his sons, that kind of jealousy. Before he died, he had all the prominent leaders of Jerusalem locked up, and he gave the order that when he died, they should take them all out and execute them, because he knew they were going to party in the streets, and he wanted somebody to be crying on the day he died. They didn't keep that on the day he died, and there was massive party. So he wasn't a great person. He was a great builder. He was amazing. And he built this incredible, incredible structure. Just this amazing, vast building. The stones were just insane. Yet in what's the modern Western Wall, you've heard of it. If you go down into the tunnel, has anybody been there? The tunnel beneath? Ah, yes, my parents went there, and I'm jealous. I'm jealous. They went there just this year. There's a stone, one of the biggest building blocks in the world, one of the foundation stones. It is 517 tons, just one stone. It's crazy. A lot of the stones that they used in the foundation stones weigh 160,000 pounds. That's insane. I mean, it's hard to even... It's hard to even comprehend that. And I know, you know, you talk about tons, it's like, that's a lot. When I was 19, um, my parents were out of town and they gave me permission to remodel a section of our house. And so I called my dad, I got a good bid on it, like really good low bid, and they wanted to start Monday. And so we started literally demoing with sledgehammers. I'm 19, right? We started demoing with sledgehammers this whole corner of our house. And I called my dad, I said, dad, you've always been a good dad. And he's like, uh-oh, we're tearing the house down. And by the time they got back, it was like a you know, huge equipment, like they were building a highway through. And we hauled off 92 ton of boulders. And it was massive. It took truckload after truckload of these giant sandstone boulders, right? Can you imagine some of these rocks? Massive, massive stones, 517 tons for one of these things, that was only 92. It was crazy. I can't even comprehend it, right? Now, there were a lot of stones that were stacked up. Uh, there's another picture here. And this isn't actually, this is some of the foundation stones of Herod's temple plus those that were added in uh, millennia past this. And this would have been other stones that were only a mere couple tons each. You know, you could just probably only pick up a couple of them, guys, right? You know, some of you. Now, these things were massive still. Huge, thick walls. And so the disciples are standing there looking at this 
incredible, incredible structure. This, these white gleaming walls, if you want to go to the next slide, it's just this beautiful, beautiful thing. Amazing, massive. And in fact, it had been under construction at this time for 46 years. And it would still be under construction all the way until AD 63. And so they're, they're just completing this amazing, huge structure. And it's, for us, it, I mean, it's like, you know, the Capitol, the White House, and Disneyland, Disneyland combined. When you talk about a national icon, right? This was their national identity. This is where it all centered on. This is, they believed the house where God dwelt on earth with his people. This is the place where it all revolved around. And Jesus looks at him and Jesus says, you see all these stones? You see all these massive stones that weigh tons each? We lay on top of these massive foundation stones that we don't even to this day know how they moved them. All going to be torn down. Not one of them is going to be standing on each other. Going to tear this whole system down. Just absorb that for a minute. How unthinkable, how ridiculous, how shocking. Just you couldn't even fathom it. And Jesus said, that's exactly what's going to happen. I want to tear this whole thing down. And so the disciples, just like you, you see, the disciples, because they had just spent three years with Jesus, because they had seen when he walked on water and Peter had experienced it, because they had seen all the healings, all the demons cast out, they, they trust Jesus at this point. And so they don't say, you got to be kidding. They go, what is, what's the question they ask? When? Like, whoa, you got to be kidding. When? Is this going to happen? Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to take place? And he replied, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. And so Jesus launches into this, this passage of Scripture, um, which when you combine it with the other two, one in Mark and the account in Matthew that actually gives us more details because they actually ask three questions. What Jesus is doing is he is answering their question and he is also like telescoping out. And, and if you read prophecy all over the Old Testament, we see this all the time. There was a prophecy about um, the king of Babylon coming in and destroying this place. And we see there's a near-term fulfillment when it happened just a short time later they came, but then a couple hundred years later, it was completely wiped off the map. And so that's the Old Testament. And you see Jesus begins to explain this and he is going to use, put on his prophet hat. He's going to use prophet language, especially if you go to some of the other um, versions like Matthew. Luke when Luke, as he's inspired, he's writing to a Gentile audience all around the Roman Empire that doesn't understand necessarily all the, all the Jewish terminology and stuff. And so he changes where you hear a phrase like the abomination of desolation. If you're a church person, if you're not, you're like, whoa, what is that, right? Um, but it, when you hear a phrase like that, Luke actually translates it into understandable language. A Jewish person would go, oh, I know exactly what that means. You know, Daniel, okay, got it all. But Luke actually translates it here. 
And so he's going to telescope out, and he's going to look at stuff that's far away, and then he's going to look at stuff that's near, and we're going to look at stuff that's far away. And that's how this is going to go. And so he says, guess what? Hey, these things are going to happen. There's going to be lots of people come in my name claiming I am he. That happened just years after Jesus. It's happened ever since. There have been numerous cults of people claiming to be Jesus and numerous people deceived and people led to their death. I always tell you, do not drink the Kool-Aid. If we ever serve Kool-Aid, don't drink the Kool-Aid, okay? I don't care if you like me, you know, and trust me as your pastor. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. We wouldn't serve that kind of Kool-Aid, don't worry. And for those that may be new to church or that phrase, that is because there was a, a cult that literally served poison Kool-Aid, and a bunch of them died. guy that claimed to be Jesus. He says, it's going to happen. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be wars and uprisings. You know, there's only been, out of the last couple thousand years, there's only been a couple hundred years without a war around the world. So it's going to happen. Don't be frightened. Don't be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Things like eclipses and things that they viewed as big signs in the first century. But before all of this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues, the local, kind of the local assembly of of the religious um, Jewish community and put you in prison and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. This begins happening weeks, just weeks after the resurrection of Jesus, right after Pentecost. These guys begin to be drugged in front of the rulers and kings and all happens a short time after this in the next couple decades. And so you will bear testimony to me But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. This is the little problem for, you know, the prosperity gospel teachers, you know. You're going to be healthy, wealthy, have it all. Life will be easy. Or they might hate you on account of Jesus. You might die and be persecuted. And this is really interesting that Jesus says this, but not a hair on your, of your head will perish. Whoa, 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 wait, Jesus, hold on. So Jesus, some of you will be put to death. Not a hair on your head will perish. How's that going to work? I mean, I know John over there, you know, shaves his head. He's bald, you know. But hey, how does that work for the rest of us here? And it it works only when you have an eternal perspective, which Jesus has been teaching these guys over and over and over again. We live because we know this life, as important as it is, isn't the main deal. This life is short when you compare it to eternity. Eternity, eternal life so much longer. Jesus said, don't worry. That might happen. But they can't, 
In fact, another spot, he says, don't fear those who can kill the body. Yeah, they can only kill the body. It's like, I know, that's what we're scared of, Jesus. Don't fear them. See, it's the age to come. If you're thinking, if you're living with an eternal perspective, it changes everything when it comes to fear in your life. Stand firm and you will win life. Verse 20. Now, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. Now, this is the same exact phrase that in um, the other gospels, like Matthew, this is the same exact phrase that Jesus uses for uh, when you see the abomination that brings desolation. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city, for this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. You remember all of Luke leading up to this point? He keeps warning him. He keeps warning him. Repent. Turn to me. Recognize the Messiah. Recognize the day that God is moving in your midst. He weeps as he comes into Jerusalem because he realizes they're not getting it. They're not recognizing it. They're missing their Messiah. In fact, they're going to crucify their Messiah. And he says, but there is a day when all this religious system that missed God, that crucified God in the flesh, it's all going to come tumbling down. Verse 23, how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Why? Because there'll be a siege and there'll be a famine. There won't be any nutrition for mom or for baby. There will be a great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This happens a little less than 40 years after Jesus speaks these words in stunning detail to Jesus' words. These giant, massive stones, I told you I was going to pull out Josephus. If any of you are history nerds, this is a readable English version of Josephus, one of the most trusted early histories of the Jewish people in the, in the Roman wars against Israel. And I thought I'd read some of this to you to show just how, you, you remember, you saw that temple just a second ago. You saw those stones. You can imagine sitting there in the place of the disciples going, unthinkable. All this torn, and the stones torn like one from the other? You gotta be kidding. Nobody would tear those down. Those massive stones? Well, here's what happens is through a series of false prophets and false messiahs that come, the Jewish people begin to rebel against Rome. They quit paying taxes. Rome comes in. They're incited to riots, all these kind of things. And so eventually Titus, who will become the next emperor of the Roman Empire, says this. He came in, into the city, and they laid siege to Jerusalem to try to take the city. It, the conditions were so bad that Josephus notes a story I cannot even read in church here because it's that disturbing. It's about cannibalism of a mother and a baby. Famine happens. Pestilence happens. 
And then by the time they finally incite a riot um, and begin to take the city, Titus doesn't want to burn the temple because it's one of the most amazing buildings in the world. He doesn't want to burn it down. And so he specifically tells the soldiers not to, but they're so angry and so filled with hatred that they light the thing on fire. On, the, on, on that day, he says, the 10th of Loas, August, around August 30th, the structure was doomed. Listen to this. The very day on which the former temple had been destroyed by the king of Babylon, the very day of the month, 600 years earlier. Interesting. He says this. Against his wishes, the sanctuary was burnt. Against Titus' wishes, While the temple was in flames, the victors stole everything they could lay their hands on and slaughtered all who were caught. No pity was shown to age or rank, old men or children. The laity or the priest, all were massacred. As the flames roared up and since the temple stood on a hill, it seemed as if the whole city were ablaze. The noise was deafening with war cries of the legions, howls of the rebels surrounded by fire and sword and the shrieks of the people. The ground was hidden by corpses and the soldiers had to climb over heaps of body in pursuit of the fugitives. Listen listen to this one. Numerous false prophets deluded the people at this time. They were hired by the tyrants to urge the people to wait for the help of God and and, and so to keep them from deserting. Before this siege, however, portents had appeared or signs had appeared foretelling the impending devastation. But the Jews had disregarded these warnings of God. A star resembling a sword hung over the city and also a comet which lasted a year. As they lay siege, eventually the temple burns and goes up in flames. And then they begin to lay siege to the rest of the city because of the mass of people that were huddled in the temple escape over into the higher city in Jerusalem. Pouring into the streets of the upper city, they massacred everyone they found, burning the houses with all who had taken shelter in them. So great was the slaughter that in many places the flames were put out by streams of blood. Towards evening, the butchery ceased, but at night, the fire spread. All Jerusalem was in flames. As Titus entered the city, he was astonished at its strength, especially the towers, which the tyrants had abandoned. Indeed, when he saw how high and massive they were, remember these huge stones, the size of each huge block, he exclaimed, surely God was with us in the war who brought the Jews down from these strongholds. The total number of prisoners taken during the war was 97,000. And those who died during the siege, 1,100,000. Listen to this. Caesar ordered the entire city and temple smashed to the ground. See, as these huge fires came up, there was so much gold in the temple that it melted into the cracks between the rocks. And literally, stone by stone, they tore apart. The unthinkable happened. And just what Jesus said 40 years before this happened. He said, leaving only the tallest of towers standing, and he gives three of those, and part of the western wall, the western wall, to show posterity or future generations the strong defenses which had yielded to the Romans. Isn't that crazy? There's a compelling, strong case that all of this, as recorded by Luke in Luke and Acts, was written years before these unthinkable events happened. And it happened just like he said 40 years later. In fact, what's intriguing 
is that when, they, when the Roman army surrounded the city of Jerusalem, the Christians who knew and believed what Jesus did, they, they ran away. Because the thing to do in ancient times was when, the, when an army would lay siege to, siege to a city, you'd go inside the city and you'd wait them out. And Jesus says, you don't want to do that. Very counterintuitive. And so the followers of Jesus that knew his words, they escaped into the desert and survived. Amazing. The unthinkable had occurred. And Jesus says, Jerusalem is going to be trampled on by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And that's exactly what has happened over the last 2,000 years. After this point, Judaism, as, as it existed for millennia, was gone and has remained so. It wasn't until after this point that what we know, modern Judaism, rabbinic Judaism, even became a thing because the whole Jewish temple system was all around the temple. It was a place. It was a place. And the time of the Gentiles is this time when the gospel is offered to people from every tongue, tribe, and nation that we're still in. As the gospel goes forward, Paul says this in Romans 11, and it's a really interesting scripture. He said that when it came to the Jewish people, his contemporaries that hadn't embraced Jesus, he says that they, they're experiencing a partial hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Now, I think it's very significant that in 1948, Israel became a state again. And I think it's very significant that in 1967, Israel retook the Temple Mount, although as you all know, with the tensions all around the Middle East, the Temple Mount is under the control of Islam, right? So Jesus goes on in verse 25 to say this, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars on the earth. Nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Events that I believe are future. And this is, again, apocalyptic language. You find the same kind of language in the Old Testament. And really, when it refers to it, it's referring about tumultuous events. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your head, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. I did an extensive comparative study of the three texts of this passage, and I'm not going to do that today. Someday we'll do a nerd sesh, like on an evening or something, but not now. We've got too much going on with this construction. But a quick note on this is that the word generation in the Greek can mean the present generation, but it can also mean a race and a people. And the big point of this for me is Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And I think you can have two errors when you look at passages like this. 
One of them is you can be over-fixated on all the details and nerd out on all the details of his return. In fact, back in, uh, it was called the Jesus, um, Jesus movement. Um, it's been in my mind. In the 60s and 70s. There was such an emphasis on the rapture and Jesus' return and all this stuff that people would, they weren't getting married. They wouldn't buy houses. They weren't planning for their future. So that's one extreme. The other extreme is you can be so ho-hum about the fact that Jesus says he's going to return that you don't, it doesn't affect your life one bit at all. You've heard it and you're like, oh yeah. But really, you don't even know if you really believe it. You can be ho-hum. And here's what Jesus would say. Be careful, verse 34. Where your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. And this is really what I want to leave you with. The same Jesus who rightly predicted the unthinkable says he is coming again. If Jesus could predict with such accuracy the unthinkable destruction of the temple, what does that say about his assurance that he will come again? We started this summer part of our Luke series talking about a persistent widow parable. And Jesus asked this probing question. You know, when, when, I, when I come again, will I find faith on the earth? In the Jewish mind, faith and faithfulness go hand in hand. So the question is, in light of who Jesus is, in light of the fact that he predicted not only his death and resurrection and pulled it off, but he predicted this thing that for anyone that was sitting there would have been absolutely unthinkable. And it happened just like he said. So the question is, will he find, what will we find in your heart? Will you be living faithfully for his kingdom? Are you so caught up in the worries and cares of life, like Jesus says, the anxieties of life, that God is usually the last thing on your mind? Another question is, what is God consistently prompting you towards that you just refuse to do? Is there an area of obedience that the Holy Spirit just keeps pinpointing in your life? Whether that's something you need to do, a step you need to take for Jesus, for his kingdom, step of obedience, or something you need to quit doing. And for those that are skeptical, let me, let me just ask, how assured are you that your, in my opinion, your bogus arguments that you can't trust Scripture are really true? Which leads you to the fact that you think, I don't really need to follow Jesus. I don't really need to take all this stuff seriously. How convinced are you? I think that when you really take a good look at it, the evidence, it will lead you to Jesus. And some of you, you need to respond to him right now. So we're going to close in prayer. If you want to stand, I'm just going to pray over you. And for anyone in the room that you feel God is tugging you, Jesus is tugging you to follow him, I just want to invite you to respond and pray a prayer like this. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Lord Jesus, I know that I've sinned. I need you. I want to give you my life. Welcome me into your family. Forgive me.
I want to live my life for you. Lord, for all my other friends that, Lord, that are caught up in the worries and anxieties of life, would you just bring them back to this point of knowing and recentering their lives on you and your kingdom and help them keep that on the forefront in spite of how crazy life can get. Lord, we pray these things in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.